Welcome to the Development Policy Centre podcast. In this episode, Dr. Jack Shandesai summarises the results of a randomised control trial which sought to measure the impact of exposure to family planning and credit programs in two regions of Ethiopia. All right, good afternoon, everyone, and thanks for coming along. My name is Terence Wood. I'm a research fellow at the Development Policy Centre, and I've got the uh, pleasure of introducing today uh, Jackie Desai, who's a senior lecturer at the School of Government at Victoria University of Wellington. Uh, before I introduce Jackie, I just want to acknowledge the Ngunnawal people, the traditional custodians of the land upon which we're uh, presenting today, and to acknowledge their elders past and present. Um, and I'm particularly excited to introduce today's talk uh, because it speaks to uh, two things that I'm very interested in, uh, uh, and it sort of lies at the intersection of uh, both development practice and development methods. And I think this talk is about a study that was an exemplar uh, when it came to taking an innovative method to try and learn more about just what might work and might not work in important aspects of aid work. In particular, uh, the study that Jackie's going to speak about looks at work undertaken in Ethiopia to, uh, undertaken to try and ascertain whether microcredit programs were successful and also whether work involving women's sexual and reproductive health was successful. These are both very important areas, uh, common types of work that aid, aid uh, organisations engage in. But obviously, um, being engaged in this sort of work is only any use if it works. And while not all, sorts of, not all aid work can be studied successfully using randomised control trials, the sorts of uh, projects that Jackie studied uh, lend themselves very well to randomised control trials. And so I think it's uh, been particularly uh, fortunate uh, that this sort of work was studied in this way. Uh, and I know I'm going to be interested in peppering Jackie with questions uh, in the question time about just how the method was applied and, and what the findings revealed. But for now, I'm going to hand over to him, and he's going to give you a summary of the study. Over to you. Thanks. Um, all right, so I'm going to tell you about this study that began eons ago, uh, and actually is, was singularly credited from getting me back to academics, which is great. Uh, I like to think about this microcredit and family planning. It's a good idea to place it in context. Uh, I teach a course in development policy, and to try and get a sense of how this fits into people's lives. Right? So when I think about, you know, regardless of development level, income levels and so on, there are, there are some certain central challenges of life. Right? Uh, we, we've, we're in an age of plenty, so we forget that the central challenge for human beings has always been surviving. Uh, so in some hierarchy of needs and motivations, surviving is a key thing. And you have to survive to then be able to do the things that you value and desire. Right? Now, both of these things require abilities and resources. Um, abil abilities, and economists are paying increasing attention to personality traits as one aspect of ability, they're reasonably stable uh, over time. Resource availability, on the other hand, isn't. <clears throat> it tends to vary. And I mean, one of the central aspects of life uh, is variation. Uh, it's part and parcel of life. In the modern world, it doesn't seem to be that important. I mean, I'm not too worried about where tomorrow's uh, food is going to come from because I have a stable job. Uh, in wage income settings with secure employment, you don't think about variation. But you go farm out in, in the rural area, you're dealing with variation all the time. When you have small plots of land, it's a 
critical aspect of life that one has to deal with. Uh, you can think about variation in two ways. I mean, you know, there's expected variation. You know that life's going to change over time. Marriage, cohabitation, childbirth, death, relocation. These are things as if you're an economist, you'll think of them as endogenous, as choices that people make. More importantly, it's something you can look forward to and you can potentially plan for. And then there is this unexpected variation, the real nuisance part that just happens. You know, the weather changes, uh, you can have illness, injury, um, theft, burglary, you can have a good one, which is lottery, uh, communal violence, you may have nothing to do with it. And then there's this other nuisance of an unwanted pregnancy. Now, I'll come to that because I have a slightly different perspective from the way demography tends to look at things. So given that variation is part and parcel of life, managing variation, I think, is one of the very key challenges that people face. And the modern world is distinguished from the world that went by primarily in terms of our ability to manage variation. It's not just higher incomes, but it's also what has resulted from the higher incomes, which is a better ability to manage variation at an individual level and at societal level and governmental and institutional level. So some variation is manageable, some is not. I think both these things, right, I was fishing for a linking thing, so I'll be quite honest. Uh, I was trying to figure out how to sort of link these two parts of this study together. And I think this is a way to think about it, is that they both are instruments for managing variation of different types. Right? So how does microcredit fit into pe poor people's lives? Now, if you've studied microcredit and credit in general, I mean, most of this is pretty familiar, but I'd like to sort of think of it in a logical way. So, you know, those who have limited incomes, the poor, have limited ability to save. As a result, they, can, they have limited ability to use savings when you have unexpected variation. Limited savings means limited ability to accumulate assets, which means limited ability to sell off those assets when you face shocks, okay? limited ability to offer those assets for collateral, that means you're shut out of formal credit markets, right? which is where uh, the problem arises because then a lot of poor families then end up borrowing from informal uh, money lenders and interest rates being very high. A lot of people don't like it and there's a moral aspect to it, but they're taking on higher risk, they require higher compensation, that's kind of how it comes about. I mean, that's where the beauty of microfinance really comes in, uh, is that it's a mechanism for flipping the logic of that over uh, and providing loans to poor people. All right. So microcredit offers the possibility of borrowing, and its primary benefit, I think, is managing variation. That's not how we measured it in this study. So I'll acknowledge that if I had given this lecture before doing the study in 2002, I probably would have designed the survey instrument differently. Uh, but that's how it went. So that's how that fits in. About family planning. Uh, if you go looking at the demography literature, one of the startling things is there is no sex in demography. Uh, I mean, I did economic demography as a graduate student ages and ages ago. Uh, and I've sort of followed family planning, the literature for a long period of time. It's really quite astonishing that there is no sex in there. All right? It's very, it's odd because sex is central to people's lives. Right? Uh, it's a basic biological impulse. 
Um, and it's, I mean, you can think of it, you know, in, if you like Dawkins and Selfish Gene, uh, it's, uh, it's the central mechanism for Dawkins' Selfish Gene uh, to perpetuate itself, right? The thing is, it's got consequences. Uh, people mostly engage in sex for pleasure. Some may also do it for pregnancy, or some may just have both involved in there. Uh, it can be wanted or not wanted for pleasure. Either way, unless the pregnancy, wanted or not wanted, is terminated, it leads to a birth. That means there are consequences, economic consequences. There are costs, uh, health costs, and then child-raising costs, and then there are ben potential benefits in poor country settings, whereby if you manage to raise the kid to adulthood, you can get labor income, you can get potentially economic security, and so on. I think if I want to tie it together, contraception, which I don't, I like to call it contraception, not family planning, because if you think about sex being the main thing, then it's contraception. It's not really family planning. That's how we, we're, we're taught this stuff, that people have sex to plan families. I don't think it works right, like that. Right? Uh, so, but it's a another mechanism for managing variation. The unexpected, the, you're weakening the link between sex and its consequences. So it's another mechanism for managing variation. So again, if I had thought of it this, this before, I would have potentially designed the study differently. So all of that was just kind of background, background noise. The real part, the study's context, um, I started working at Family Health International in 2001. And the Packard Foundation at that time used to fund family planning programs and credit programs in Ethiopia. And uh, FHI had an office in Ethiopia. And the way Packard did this was uh, it provided grants to local NGOs to run family planning programs and microcredit programs in, in two regions. And what they asked Family Health International to do in Addis Ababa was to evaluate an idea that they had was to use the microcredit programs as entry points for increasing contraceptive use. They weren't really interested in microcredit at all. In fact, actually, I think I've looked at their website now. They don't fund credit microcredit in Ethiopia. They're still very heavy on population. It's an agenda that some of the big donors have had for 50 years. Uh, it's this belief that population growth is bad for development. Uh, there's not such great evidence on that, particularly in the African context, but it's, it's a very strong push, and Packard is very much up there uh, leading this whole idea. So they wanted to evaluate the program, and so they got in touch with FHI, and that's how I got involved. Those are the two regions, uh, Amara and Oromia, uh, that we ended up doing the study in. Their primary study interest was whether linking family planning and credit would lead to a better contraception, family planning use outcome, and reduced fertility. That's what they were primarily interested in. It was motivated by what they had learned or had been told was the story in Bangladesh, which was with the Matlab experiment and the benefits of credit and family planning and the empowerment of women. So that's what they really wanted to do. But that's, that wasn't necessarily going to work in rural Ethiopia because it's the possibility of starting businesses in remote areas 
tends to be limited in Africa, uh, where population density is a whole lot lower than it is in Asia, and particularly South Asia. So I mean, there are some constraints there, but that's what they wanted to know. Um, the way we were going to do this really was to say, well, you know, we'll measure the impact of linking family planning and credit by comparing outcomes in places where you have linked programs with places that have unlinked programs. Okay, that was a very, it was a very, very simple idea. Um, and to be very clear, the intervention is about Packard funded programs, not any program as such. So it's kind of like a looking at a marginal impact. The nice thing was in designing the study, we had the possibility of adding to the survey instrument questions on credit. And so that's led to looking at the impact of credit. But that was never Packard's interest. In fact, when I wrote the final report for Packard in 2007 and presented these findings in Addis, uh, there's not a single word on credit in there, uh, on the impact of credit. That's something we've done since then. Um, it's, so it's our results, I mean, our findings on credit are not uh, what a typical randomized evaluation of credit would be. All right, so the study design cluster randomized control trial whereby administrative areas were randomly allocated to one of four groups. All right. Credit and family planning, only family planning, only credit, and no program. Um, the linking, ideally, if women's empowerment had been the motivation, the linking would have been to have some aspect of credit beneficial to women potentially subsidized credit or some other form of linking. All that they wanted to do was to have the credit officers provide information on family planning. It's one of these things that permeates the literature on behavior change in pretty much anything is this idea that if you give people, people don't do the things that are beneficial to them because they don't know enough. So if we provide them information, they'll do what's good for them. This idea permeates uh, family planning. It's there with uh, HIV. It's there with youth sex, it, youth risky behavior. It's there with pretty much everything. All right. So that was their idea was microcredit involves small groups. There is constant contact with the credit officer. So during those meetings, the credit officer would provide information on family planning methods. And that would potentially make some difference. Okay. Um, the way we were going to measure the impact was to do a pre-intervention household survey in 2003 and a follow-up household survey in 2006. We couldn't follow up the same households because uh, FHI is one of these organizations that's been involved in development of contraception in biomedical services. So it has a very, very strong ethical review process. And I was told basically that there'd no, be no way in which uh, ethics review would permit following up the same households because it would be very hard to maintain confidentiality. And these are things that in, uh, in economics we pay a little bit less attention to, but uh, maintenance of uh, confidentiality is hugely critical in the biomedical field. So that's why we were told you can't get that review, no matter what you say, whether you'll put it in lock and key. So you can go back to the same villages, but you can't go back to the same households. As a result, 
We've got a panel of house, a panel of villages, but fresh cross sections in 2006. Right. So we can follow up villages, but we can't follow up households. Uh, more on that, we uh, we did some focus group discussions uh, in both regions before the survey to try and understand the context, the socioeconomic context, because a lot of that was related to the dynamics, male-female dynamics in decision-making. Um, and then the surveys themselves were well-powered to get statistically reliable results. 6,400 households about 800 in each arm, so done separately in the two regions, 3,200 in each, for, uh, about 800 in each arm. Uh, and the survey instruments, uh, basically a mix of a living standard survey and a demographic health survey. Both survey systems that have long history, uh, I'd say at least 30 years worth of history in terms of uh, survey instruments. Besides this, we also... Uh, had consultants collect uh, monthly service statistics from the areas where the credit and family planning programs were in operation throughout the study period. And then later on, I found out that there had been some vi uh, sort of deviation from study protocol. So there was more data collection by going back to the offices and figuring out who was doing what and what had been done over the three-year period. So a lot of data collected as part of the study. All right, so study findings, uh, that's, there's a final report. Uh, should you be interested, send me an email and I'll send you that. It's 2007. And there's a couple of journal papers. Uh, but what I'm going to do today is just try and keep it simple um, and present it just entirely in terms of graphs. Uh, what I'll show you is, uh, is something, and I'll comment on it as I go along, is I'll show you the overall change from 2003 to 2006 and then the impact of the programs. The difference, the, there's a good reason for doing that, is because when I presented the findings to the donors and to the grantee organizations in Addis in 2007, when I presented them the overall change, they all agreed, they all nodded their head. Then when I presented them the findings on the impact, they didn't, they didn't understand it at all. Uh, it's because you only, when, only when you do a randomized control trial or you have a comparison group can you get a sense of what the counterfactual is, which is, what if you'd not done this stuff? What would be the outcome? But that's the only way in which you can actually measure impact well. So that's what, we'll, that's what I'll go ahead and do. And I'll have to rifle through stuff quickly. So this is this is a finding on change in contraceptive use. 2003, in the two regions, very low current use of contraception. 2006, which is the green bars, it's a huge increase over a three-year period. I mean, that's that's a fairly large increase. Okay, so you're you're tempted to say, well, you know, yeah, so Packard-funded programs were actually doing their work. Total fertility rate, which is the number of children a woman would bear if she followed current fertility rates over, you see small declines, which is what you'd want if you're funding family planning programs. Desired family size, this is something to pay attention to. It was quite high in 2003. It declined a little bit, but it still was quite high. Uh, it's one of these interesting things that donors have had a hard time grasping is if people want to have more children, 
That means they may be having different demographic objectives individually than what you're thinking about as being socially optimal. So desired family size declined, but not by much. Intention to use contraception in the future for those who weren't using. It went up more so in Amara than in Oromia, but slight increases everywhere. And then this is the thing where, you know, you tell them more. So it was already around 80%. So this is an interesting thing. Awareness of any family planning method is 80%, but if you go back here, actual use is less than 10% in 2003. So that's, that's a fairly standard finding across all the DHS surveys, is you go ask people, are you know of contraception and different methods? Yes, we do. 80-90% of them say that, but very few end up using that. So it's not because they don't know. That seems like it. All right. Okay, so that's the overall change. Looks very good. Impact of interventions. Um, turns out we had some deviations from study protocol. I mean, it's uh, uh, some of my friends have a hard time understanding how you can have deviations from an experimental protocol. Uh, but when uh, when you're running programs in remote areas and local authorities have uh, a lot of influence on what goes on, and your implementing organizations have are more interested in doing things than what your study findings are going to be. And it's very hard to get them to actually follow protocol completely. So we had deviations. Turns out the initial lists provided by the grantees had some minor problems. They had put in their places administrative units, which already had programs. It was only about eight out of, I think, 137. Uh, and then there were deviations. They ended up providing program services in some places they weren't supposed to and not in other places. So in about 28% of the peasant associations, there was deviation. That still means pretty high compliance. The consequence of that from a statistical point of view is that the program exposure is no longer random, which is the beauty of a randomized control trial, that you're able to isolate one causal effect. Okay, you, it's very hard to do that with anything else. But you can do that with a randomized control trial, but now that gets compromised. So being economists, we did the standard thing, which is, all right, we'll fix this with econometrics. Uh, I mean, not in the final report. In the final report, I still had to do it the way the biostatistician at FHI told me, which is do it, it's called intent to treat. However, the design was supposed to be. You just follow that regardless of deviation. Turns out our final results and the journals eventually ended up accepting that too, that that's what we should be doing. Um, what I'm going to show you today is really ignoring that deviation. And so basically what's called intent to treat analysis, which is areas that were assigned to programs. We're going to keep them that way and we'll look at results in that way. When you do impact um, these randomized control trials, it's kind of important to check the randomization because in theory, you randomly allocate areas or people to different intervention arms. And the idea there is that that balances out the underlying characteristics and in the behavioral outcomes. Okay, so they're, they're evenly distributed, but that doesn't always happen when it actually is in practice. So we tested this, and I'm, I'll skip that. Um, 
I think you look at the demography paper that has all these results in there. All right, so here's the main thing that Packard was interested in. Does linking make a difference? And what I have in these graphs is the blue part is the story in 2003 and in Amara, and the green part is the change since 2003 over a three-year period. Now, if linking had a beneficial impact, then this green part should be substantially more than the green part for FP. Both means credit and family planning, right? So there's a, it's 2% higher, but that's not statistically significant. So it did increase, but not by a whole lot. So one thing it starts telling you is that, you know, to the family planning programs, that, you know, linking is really not worthwhile. The bigger thing, and this is really what created a lot of headaches in time trying to explain it, is these two treatment arms together represent the impact of family planning, and they are not much greater than places where there is no family planning. Okay. Now, I, I, what I'm saying, I mean, I, you know, I have to say very clearly is that that means Packard-funded family planning. So one of the things that later on, I, in looking to see why the patterns happened, I spent a lot of time trying to figure out was whether other organizations had compensated for missing Packard programs here. So they would have then, as a result, balanced things out. Turns out that's really not the case. So you've got this problem. But that's one outcome indicator. And that's in Oromia. It's, it's just the other region. It's the same story. The green parts are pretty much similar across the four treatment arms. That's saying that those interventions actually have no effect on current contraceptive use. I'll just flip through the next bits. Uh, it's basically the same story. Total fertility rate, no great difference. Intention to use contraception. In Amara, there was some effect from family planning. Okay, so there is some weak indication that the programs had an effect on intention to use contraception, not actual use, intention to use. Right? So there's some there, but Oromia, there's nothing. In fact, if anything, uh, there's hardly any difference. Yeah, skip that. Okay. If, if I just take out from, if I just combine these two and these two to look at the impact of family planning, which is this, in the two regions, there's really no difference. This is current contraceptive use, sorry. The label is missing there. There's really no difference. So that basically means that those family planning programs funded by Packard have no beneficial impact on use of contraception, on various other indicators. I haven't shown everything here. And on fertility. That's not very heartening news to to the grantee organizations who are actually doing the work. And they were quite incensed at the dissemination setting. And it's if you if you are a researcher presenting findings to people who actually do programs, it's I've found in and it's not just Ethiopia, in other places, including developed countries, it's one of the hardest things to communicate is the value of a counterfactual. That if you don't have a counterfactual, it's very, very hard to make a case for a causal effect. Okay. 
there are some brilliant stuff. I mean, it turns out it's actually very relevant even for our daily lives. It's not just about policy. But that basically says family planning has no effect. All right, so summary of results, large increase in contraceptive use, but linking has no effect, and none of the interventions have any substantial effect. Now, not just statistically significant, but even in terms of size of impact, not much effect of that. I mean, we looked, I had, then we went looking to see why that was not the case, because one of the things that the grantee organization said to me at the ADIS meeting was, you're telling us something that runs completely contrary to our service statistics. Our service statistics and where on the ground we know that we're distributing more condoms and pills for the past three years and you're coming here and telling us that that makes no difference. So you try and explain to them, but you aren't measuring the places you're not providing this thing and you don't know what's going on over there. Okay. So we looked at randomization, whether that made a difference. Turns out, no, that's not the big thing. With randomized control trials, you always want to be concerned about spillover effects so that your control group is different from the intervention group. The intervention stuff isn't spilling over to the control group. We looked at that. didn't seem to be any great reason for it. The biggest problem potentially was the method mismatch which is what these organizations, and I can't prove it, we didn't, we just sort of left it as a possibility. What they were providing was pills and condoms. When we asked women what method they were actually using, they were using injectables. So there's a method mismatch potentially, and maybe that explains the results. All right, <clears throat> findings for microcredit. Overall, huge increase on the extensive and intensive margins of borrowing. I'll only show you the extensive margin. The percent of households who took out a loan, there's a very large increase from 2003 to 2006 in both regions. Potentially when, I mean, these micro loans are supposed to be, you're supposed to have a plan, okay? But money is fungible. So one way to think about it is, well, you know, does that, does a microcredit and a greater access to credit markets make households less autarkic in the sense that they engage in the market economy more? So one thing we looked at was crop marketing. There is an increase in both regions. This is the percentage of households who sold any crop. Now, you know, this is, yeah, to me, one of the most interesting differences between Africa and Asia is that the percentages who engage in the market either as buyers of inputs, primarily labor, and sellers of output in Africa tends to be much lower than it is in Asia. In Asia, there's much greater connectedness, uh, even though there is much greater poverty. Right? So that crop marketing, it went up. Wage income, it's very low. I mean, Asian economies... Um, even the poorest farmers and buy and sell labor, I don't know exactly the numbers, but I think it's much more than 10-15%. Uh, right. So in both regions, that went up. Uh, this is what often microcredit is for, is for starting small businesses. If you look at those percentages and not just focus on the graphs, yes, it increased, but it's less than 10%. 
So less than 10%, even in 2006, started a business in the past three years. These aren't your treatment effects, though, are they? I'm sorry? No, not yet. This is just the overall, this is the overall story. Right? So overall story looks pretty good. Okay. Even though this is very, the numbers are very low, in, over the entire study area, things have changed. Household food security, well, that's percentage of households, actually, I should call it household food insecurity. Uh, these are the number of months that households said they didn't have enough food. Okay, so it's a self-reported measure. It's not based on consumption. The number of months is lower in 2006 than 2003, all of which is saying that economic conditions improved over the three-year period. Okay. Now we look at the impact of microcredit. On household borrowing, statistically significant effect on the extensive margin, and I don't have a graph here for the intensive margin, which is the amounts borrowed, that's also gone up tremendously. 2003 to 2006. So you've got change in the credit arm, areas which got the Packard funded credit. The increase is much greater in both regions. Okay. And it's statistically significant. And the size of the impact is large. Right. I mean, there's a, there's a big move within economics uh, to not focus so much on statistic, uh, statistical significance, but also pay attention to impact size. The impact size is pretty large, too. Um, and it's also on the intensive margin, so the amount borrowed also went up a good bit. The nice thing also is it didn't seem to have displaced loans from other sources. Okay. So it was. you can say it's a net increase in borrowing, which you think should then translate over to increases in other things. And it doesn't turn out to be that way. All right. Similar patterns of increase. You would think that if greater credit market engagement means a greater ability to manage variation and hence an ability to engage in the market more, because engaging with the market means taking on greater risk. Okay, you're selling off food and when later on potentially you're going to buy back food when you need it. Right? So you are taking more risk. There's no difference between the credit and the control arms. Impact on wage income, there's really no difference in the percentage of households that derive any income from wages. No, in, no impact on non-business initiation, creation of new businesses. Right? It's already very, it's very small, the impact. Household food security, this is the one place where these in these differences are sufficiently large. Now, I should say that I've shown here results separated by region. In the paper, we've actually just put both regions together. And there is some weak effect on food security. Okay, but that's it's a self-reported measure. And a lot of uh, economists don't necessarily like that. Uh, they prefer a consumption-based um, measure, but we don't have that in the data. All right, so summary of results, intervention had an impact on borrowing, extensive and intensive margins. It did not displace borrowing from other sources, it had some impact on food security, but no impact on a large measure of things. And we looked at about 40 different outcome indicators 
squeezing the data for pretty much everything we could. Uh, so on the whole, this it didn't have an impact. And uh, in February, uh, there are a couple of big, big players in this randomized control trial at MIT and Yale and so on. And so they organized a big conference, uh, and um, which was basically to say that you know microcredit uh, may not be the magic bullet. Uh, as Abhijit Banerjee likes to call it, the transformative effect it's supposed to have over one-year, two-year periods, which to me sounds a little ridiculous. Uh, but that it's not the magic bullet that uh, that people have believed for a long period of time. And it's randomized control trials that are saying that. Okay. I did this a long time ago, and I've had to rethink some of it. At the end of it all, uh, I'm left with several questions. Are these, I mean, that I think anybody should reasonably ask, uh, programmatic people and research people, are these findings reliable? Uh, yes. I mean, I think the sample size is sufficiently powered. It's a large sample, and it's well, really properly done, the statistical work, um, in terms of designing the randomization, powering the study, and so on. So the results are reliable. But any survey-based measure is about as good as the survey instruments that produce the data. And you can never be 100% sure. I mean, I find it kind of amusing when uh, academics argue about measures and truly believe the ones they like and are happy to trash the ones they don't. Uh, a survey measure is just about as good as it gets you. Okay. And you have to, if you have to really be in the field to get a sense of all the potential biases that creep in. So on the whole, yeah, I think they're pretty reasonable, these uh, study findings. As a researcher, what would I do differently? Oh, a lot of things. Yeah, at the end of every study, I always think to myself, I wish I could go back and redo things. It never happens that way. If I was to do it differently, I'd design better survey instruments, partly to measure the variation management aspect, but even some of the other measures I would do differently. Uh, my mindset when I designed this study in 2002 was very much from the organizational setting I was in, which was a biomedical firm looking at evaluating an impact. And RCTs in the biomedical field have been standard fare for a very long time. I mean, as economists, we've seemed to have discovered their value in the past 20 years, but they've been around for a very long time. And the thinking process, my thinking process and my superior's thinking process was once you've got randomization, very straightforward. The nice thing about randomization is you just compare means. Okay, You don't need to worry about everything, anything else. You just do that. So you don't need to collect any detailed data. If I was redoing it, I'd ask a lot of other questions that would improve that. I would also pay greater attention to other programs. Uh, I did try very hard with Packard to try and tell them that linking wouldn't work uh, in 2002 itself, uh, that Ethiopia was not Bangladesh. Uh, rural areas in Ethiopia were, and in a lot of part, large parts of Africa, actually Ethiopia is on the better off setups that way, are so remote that market engagement uh, tends to be much smaller. So it's not just as simple as changing things and you know, people will start trading and see the value of market economic engagement. Uh, so I would have done that differently at the end of it. I'll let the donors think about whether it was worth spending $700,000 on the study. 
that's a good I, good point, but uh, they they don't like to think like that. You know, I mean, you know, Packard has large amounts of money. They spend millions of dollars on population programs. Uh, I don't know whether this these findings had anything to do with why they don't fund credit anymore in Ethiopia, because their website doesn't show that. I don't know that. But they're still heavily involved with family planning in Ethiopia. Now, hopefully, they took these findings and said to the grantee organizations, you guys need to be providing injectables. Change the method mix. But I don't know that. Can I ask about that actually? <clears throat> what kinds of, was it modern contraception that you were only asking for? Or yeah. were also traditional methods in the mix? We asked the whole range, the, whole the typical range. DHS range. And, and were the long-acting contraception, contraception options used more in the other areas that were not, um, where you look like us wasn't involved in? They, they were used everywhere, in all four arms. They were all using injectables, the long-acting ones. Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, programmatically, what does it mean? I don't know. Uh, I mean, you know, maybe you have questions on that. Uh, Packard clearly has an agenda on family planning and population. Uh, I don't think any RCT is ever going to get them to change their mindset on it. Uh, I mean, there's a whole there's a whole mindset in Washington. Uh, that you think Washington consensus was an important part of uh, the reform agenda of the 80s. There's been a Washington consensus on population and development for even longer. And it hasn't really changed. It started with uh, Cole and Hoover at Princeton, and it's never really completely gotten off the rails. Uh, just to me, all has always been odd in Africa. So I don't think any RCT is ever going to get uh, the, the main flag bearers of population and family planning in Africa to change anything, um, which is, I guess, what it is. Um, on credit, I guess there's a lot of new thinking about it. Uh, there's, there's, should you do credit differently? I, I suppose uh, these things are worth paying attention to. One of the things, actually, I think that is worth paying attention to, and I didn't bring out in this thing in here, but whenever I look at an RCT, it's very tempting to generalize from a study and say that credit doesn't work or family planning doesn't work or labor market uh, skills training doesn't work. It's a good idea to actually pay attention to the details because what an RCT shows is that that specific intervention in that specific site worked or did not work. You do have to worry about external validity. And Deaton's been pushing this at Princeton for a while. He's one of, they have apparently this big argument going on between the MIT Poverty Action Lab people and Deaton and Heckman and so on. Uh, but that's a real concern. I mean, what we observe here in two regions in Ethiopia, is it relevant to Mali? Is it relevant to Nigeria, Kenya, any of the other African countries anywhere? I don't know. Program people will probably not pay attention to the details and to the footnotes that tell you the specifics of the intervention. So this study says linking credit and family planning has no beneficial impact. I would bet good money a lot of people won't look to see that there's a very specific type of linking that is being talked about here. So that's kind of very important uh, to pay attention to. Yeah. Some of the other studies, they've shown that 
for example, economic pressure is one of the reasons for reducing fertility. Economic pressure always has a very large impact on fertility decline. And but in poor communities, when the desire for number of children is already hard, if you give them some intervention to have better economic situation, then they can meet their desire. Yeah. So it's not going to use family planning to reduce the number of children. They use that economic benefits yeah. to have their desired number of children. That is. So that's what happened, I think, in Ethiopia. I don't know. Maybe. I mean, I don't know whether that's what happened, but that's a plausible argument that credit that allows for better management of economic conditions enables people to have the number of children they want to have. Yeah, it's possible. It's possible. I had a question earlier just to better understand how this design was actually set up. So your trip, it's a few questions that I need to go through. So the level of treatment was the village, right? Uh, at, at a higher administrative unit, it's called the Peasant Association, Kabele. Yeah. And there are several villages under it. Okay, and then within this Peasant Association, what percentage of the population that you sampled from them received the actual treatment itself below? Yeah, okay. Uh, the, none of these findings are about actual receipt of treatment. They are about exposure to the programs. That's what I'm saying, so... What percentage of people in your given unit are actually exposed to it? Uh, technically, people. yeah. Technically, if they provided a program in in a particular administrative area, then everyone was exposed to it. Okay. The family planning one was health workers going door to door, and them organizing what are called IEC events, disseminating information on contraception and the benefits of fewer children and so on. So that means within each intervention arm, over a period of time, everyone's exposed to it. Uh, that still doesn't mean everyone uses it. Even with credit, that's available, but that doesn't mean everyone actually uses it. With microcredit, one of the problems, of course, is that it's peer selection, so you've got to form a group. One concern always with that is the most marginalized and the least credit-worthy may not be able to form a group to be able to borrow from credit. But everyone technically is uh, is exposed to it. Yeah. Thank you. A very interesting presentation. I have uh, two questions. Uh, the first one is, uh, could you tell me about the religion and whether you control for religions? Yeah, we did. It is uh, a... Yeah. And the second one is, uh, I would think that I think it is good that we can check the trend before the intervention. So we have two points in time before the intervention. Yeah. Whether in the uh, non-treated uh, PA, the trend is already going up. Yes. Yes. I mean, uh, yeah, we did look at a variety of uh, other covariates, religion, uh, ethnicity, language, and so on. Um, even after randomization, because randomization should sort of take care of that, uh, because that means those things get randomly allocated. But we still control for that. Um, on the trend part, that is actually always a relevant point, is that what we, we have is two points in time. And you're absolutely right. If the trend is different in the different arms before, 
then the changes that we observe may be very much a reflection of those trends and differences don't get wiped out by the method we're using. Uh, the thing though is, if it comes to family planning, I won't, the reason I wouldn't be too worried about the trend is that this is so low. I mean, if this was around 20%, then I'd pay a little bit more attention to trend. I mean, at, at less than 10% of eligible women using uh, contraception, actually, this is, I think, currently married women. That means almost nobody. I mean, practically speaking, that means 10 out of 100 are using it. So I would be a little bit less worried as to whether that's an increase that's going on differently in the different ways. But otherwise, you've, I mean, you know, in principle, that's that's an absolutely important thing to pay attention to. Uh, so you would want more information beforehand. Yeah. So just to be clear, the family planning intervention was purely about providing information. Uh, but also con uh, condoms and pills. Okay. And referrals too. Yeah. Uh, and then, I guess... You can look at the story two ways. One way uh, is that the Packard intervention didn't work, but on the other hand, uh, the baseline certainly improved uh, yeah. in both treatment and control groups. Yeah. So I'm curious as to your thoughts as to just why things were getting better. I mean, obviously, we know Packard Foundation can't claim any credit for it, yeah. but something's going on in rural Ethiopia that's increasing contraception, contraceptive use. I'm curious if you have any ideas as to what that might be. Oh, yeah, I mean, Ethiopia has been reasonably stable for a while. Uh, I mean, of course, this is a long time ago. Um, and you'd have to attribute it to the general pattern of development and what comes with it. Uh, economic conditions improving, demographic story changing with it or without it. I mean, I'm, I'm not, I'd be, I'd be much more worried about asserting any causal relationship there. But, you know, these stories change over time. Uh, and actually, I think, as Land Pritchett points out quite nicely in one of the CDG's things, is he says, you know, if you look at the richest countries in the world, they didn't develop because of RCTs. <laughs> I mean, they developed anyway by doing things that make sense. Uh, so I don't know what, what happened over, over that time period. But clearly things were improving and they're starting to get reflected more and more these days in the past well, past several years with Ethiopia on a more sort of consistent growth path. So maybe things are changing. I think that's thanks for the interesting presentation. By uh, in relation to that, if over time there was a better sort of growth, you mentioned some spillover effects whether how you tested it. I'm not clear about that because if if you are not taking the same, uh, you're not sure whether you're taking the same households to get the treatment over time. Yeah. Then if potentially you, you tend to sample a lot more people who didn't have the treatment, yeah. essentially you might compare them with those who didn't get the treatment anyway, which is more or less, you are saying, the effect of whether there will be a spillover effect or not. Now I should clarify, yeah. we didn't interview the same households in 2006 as 2003. But from but we did interview the same villages. Yeah. So what we did was basically, if you imagine this as a village, we took one cross section in 2003. And then in the same village, we came back and we drew a new sample. So the villages are the same. So the spillover is more, you, you're more worried about spillover, not just between villages, but across the PAs, the larger units.
So there shouldn't be any great reason for the spillover from the intervention arms. This is it's kind of a different geographical area to spill over into a different geographical area. Is every village in each PA treated? Yes. Yeah, and the PAs are allocated to the random the intervention arms. Yeah, but not every household is treated. No, they are all exposed to the program. They're all exposed. So it's not, I mean, you know, one way to think about it is uh, DDT spraying that used to be done for malaria, right? Which is where you can actually say that every household would have been treated. So they don't even make a choice. In this case, actual use is, becomes a choice, but we're not looking at actual use. Okay. Yeah. Uh, another point is, to what extent these people were poor, like, were they really really the poorest section of yeah. society on average, or... Yeah, I mean, you'd have to go to the paper to find the numbers on it. Yeah, they are very poor by by any measure. Uh, very, I mean, the, and the credit amounts lent was a substantial amount rel, relate in relation to the poverty line, the Ethiopian poverty line. Yeah, in fact, I'm trying to connect with what the other speaker said in terms of relaxing the constraints of the economy. Yeah. Yeah. Now, you know, if I was to redo it, I would ask the I would ask. Uh, I would probably have tried to do consumption data. It's really hard to train people to do that stuff. So, were all these regions unbanked before, and then bringing intervention in, they then effectively they had access to financial services. I'm sorry, say that again. Were these regions all un unbanked before? Um, well, unbanked in the formal sense, but you know, in, in any society, there are. There are revolving credit associations. There is lending and borrowing from friends and relatives. So we ask all these questions in the credit module. So I mean, unbanked in the sense that not necessarily that much formal banking, uh, but there is there are. So sometimes these things replace each other, and it's one of the concerns always with formal institutions is do they replace social networks and the social functioning. That's what I'm getting at. So I never got access to savings insurance. I only got access to debt insurance. Yeah. yeah. Um, can I ask also, did you ask, um, did you ask women whether they wanted to delay childbirth but were not actually using contraception to see if there might be other barriers such as pressure from partners and yeah. stigma becoming... We asked lots of questions on... Uh, was the, the, we, we asked questions, uh, slightly modified form of what is typically done in demographic and health surveys. So was the last birth, did you plan, did you want to have that birth? It was unwanted. I actually changed that question because I've never really liked that. So to ask them, did you even think about it? Uh, was the last birth wanted, not wanted? Do you intend to delay? Did you want to, did you not want it? Did you want to delay it? So a lot of questions about intentions and so on. A lot of that is retrospective. I mean, that one, that's one of the things that uh, always worries me, even though I sort of, where a demographer had half the time, is that pregnancy and childbirth, there's a lot of post-hoc rethinking that goes on. Uh, there's a lot of rethinking that goes on based on uh, experience with pregnancy. I mean, pregnancy is not easy. I mean, men don't really know this at all, right? But uh, just if we were to listen to women, we would know that two pregnancies are never the same. So pregnancy, a hard, a difficult pregnancy can be rationalized differently. So we asked a lot of different questions 
uh, on that. In the present tense, um, are you, forget a woman's house, another one, are you sexually active? Oh, no, we didn't ask about the sexually active. Yeah. Can't do that in rural Ethiopia, it would be very difficult. But, I mean, these are all married women. Uh, and there is gender imbalance. I mean, it's a very patriarchal society, there's no question. But we did get to some of that in the focus group discussions. Never published that, though. So, I should go back to look at it. I was just going to ask, just sorry, doesn't it come down to the number of, how many villages did you survey? Isn't that a key sort of variable since it's treatment? Uh, I have to look at it carefully. Uh, I think there were 133 PAs, and there's within there, within that, the total number of villages is about 300 or more. So, yeah, sufficiently. I mean, 6,400 6, households, roughly speaking, about no more than 20 households per village. So, 300. Yeah. Yeah, now I, mean, I was uh, the 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 power working. I didn't have anything to do with it. The biostatisticians did it, uh, and I'm guessing they did it right, well as well as you could. Uh, but yes, it is the villages stuff because that's the panel. Um, though in though in the demography paper, one of the reviewers basically made us do the analysis at the the intervention arm level by creating means at that level. It didn't change the results anything. Okay. Thank you, Jackie. Thank you, everyone, for attending. Thank you for an excellent set of questions, too. Thank you for a superb presentation. And um, with that, we can stay and have some lunch. Thanks very much. You have been listening to a podcast from the Development Policy Centre. For more information on our work, visit our website at devpolicy.anu.edu.au. To join the conversation on Australian aid, Papua New Guinea and the Pacific, and global development policy, visit our blog at devpolicy.org. At the blog, you can also sign up to our newsletter for all the latest updates or connect with us on social media. Thanks for listening.